Hello, Amanda. Thank you for coming here and welcome to Light Club. Well, thank you for having me. Why is it called Light Club? Um, well, it's a play on Fight Club, Light Club. Um, some of the people I work with thought that there's some similarities between my life and the film Fight Club. Um, one of the things is, as you probably know, uh, my flat burnt down in 2016 and it threw me into a kind of uh, a forced reinvention. I'd lived with some young cinematographers at the time. They were very early 20s. They'd just left film school and they were winning work direct from client. They were masters of marketing, uh, yet quite inexperienced technically. Uh, and I was really kind of amazed by what they were doing. And I started realising that if I was going to survive in short form, which you know, it's a bit, can be a little bit ageist, I think, short mm. form. It's in commercials, it's always about the new kind of up and comers. Mm. Uh, so I thought, if I'm going to survive in short form, I need to sort of try and reinvent myself. So uh, so we kind of, I started collaborating with these younger filmmakers and we started doing teaching kind of seminars and then started a thing called Set Notes, uh, where we break down the technical aspects of filmmaking to mm. help people. So I, I thought to myself, what would I need to know when I was 25 and starting out? So I kind of, started doing a bit of teaching uh, and then we can't, we started building up a kind of community of people of, of young people that kind of help with the social media side of things and that's why it's called Light Club and this is an old um, well it's kind of humble beginnings it's an old damp cold as you can tell <laughs> workshop and we hope it's going to be in a studio one day but for now it's uh, yeah it's it's the only space we've got to use and it's kind of Kind of fight club esque, I guess. Yeah, but no one's beating the shit out of each other here. No, not no, not not now, not today. <laughs> not yet. That's tomorrow. <laughs> Would you mind explaining to our viewers who you are? My name is Amanda Blue. I am a filmmaker. I direct. I write, and I've worked in. I've directed documentaries, commercials, and now scripted. And how do we how do we know each other? You were my cinematographer on my first ever commercial and you were, have been my cinematographer on nearly all of my commercials, not all, but most ever since. Having worked with you, I always thought, one of the things that struck me about um, how you work with your, your subjects, your art, your, either your actors or, or you know, real people in some cases, that you were so quick to kind of put them at ease. And I mm -hmm. thought that was something that you had kind of had to, you know, sort of craft over a period of time, but you were just like that to begin with in, in your personality, do you think? I think some of that's definitely just who I've always been. I've always been really aware of who in the room at, or at school, or even if I go about that, was uncomfortable. Yeah. Or so was like, shy. Like or an was, empath. Sort yeah, of. yeah. Hugely an empath. So I think I'm always aware of like how to play the room, like who's yeah. who needs what from yeah. me. To, and also I was always really good at being able to go into any kind of space. So I wasn't... I could go, and, and, and especially when I came to the UK, being Australian allows you to be outside of the class system, which I think mm. is a really amazing freedom. So no mm. one could place me. Mm. I couldn't, you know, so, so sorry, I've always been as comfortable with someone from a very humble background as someone who's from a really privileged, mm. neither intimidate me. Yeah. And I know lots of people can't go, if, if they're very middle class, they feel really uncomfortable mm. in a really working class space and I just have never had that mm. ever and I think because I probably rode the class system a bit my you know my background mm. just inevitably did that so there's that but I do think I crafted it and honed it because because then bringing in the element of the artifice of filming and cameras and set and lots of other people around 
So I'm very conscious that that is an intimidating environment for real people. And for actors, it's sometimes a fearful environment. Like sets are quite scary. Mm. We're all a bit scared, especially at the beginning. Mm. You know, I think you've got to... I've I've learned that. I've learned over time that I'm not the only one that's a bit scared. Like, so my job is to make everyone feel as comfortable and as safe. And the safer they feel emotionally and the safer hands they think Mm. they're in, then I feel like they're really free to perform because even real people have to perform even though they don't, we're not calling it that but it's the same thing I'm mm. trying to get a performance out of a real person and actors equally need to feel safe and what makes them feel safe is like you've got to quickly work out who needs what you know mm. some people need you not to give them much direction and if you gave them too much it will make them feel really anxious and other people need lots of support and like so mm. again it's like reading reading what mm. is the right thing to make the artist feel comfortable and settled so that they can be their kind of best truest mm. whatever it, self whatever it, whatever the scene or the nature of the um project requires from them was there a period where you felt like an imposter on a film set and you weren't comfortable definitely i still do <laughs> <laughs> i still do it it's takes terrible. a while to lose that doesn't it oh it's so terrible and you sort of think i think a lot of people of women have thought oh it's because we're women and then you hear so many men feeling the same way. So, yeah, definitely. And now because I'm moving completely into scripted, so even though I've vastly experienced director, I feel like I'm still having to, especially with actors, I would say, mm. that's like I'm really having to go, oh, who's going to tap me on the shoulder mm. and say, you haven't directed enough actors. <laughs> like, what are you, What? how can you tell this quite famous person mm. about the nuance of their performance? Mm. Or So I still feel that, and I feel like my my my, my next hurdle is kind of, feeling completely not like that in the um in the scripted space Mm. i really don't feel that anymore in the documentary space i feel Mm. like i'm so it's just like so my kind of dna i just find Mm. it so kind of um i know exactly it's like becoming like a master trader in document Mm. i feel like i know exactly how to manage the set the people Mm. the the story that you know it doesn't mean it's not hard and it's Mm. still every time it's a challenge but it's definitely not um, a space that I feel an imposter in anymore. Mm. But and at the beginning of making commercials, I was definitely like, you know, I went from being on sets with four people, sometimes two people, sometimes just me shooting and mm. doing sound in the beginning of making films, to, you know, maybe six or seven people was the most on a documentary shoot to like a hundred people the first time I was on the set. What was the, the first kind of big shift in the way you kind of had to behave? As, uh, when you came from documentary and you came onto a commercial film set for the I first time? I think the very first thing I shot was my, like I learnt so much that day, mm. which you shot. <laughs> Thank God you were nice. Um, I didn't, no one had sat me down and told me any protocols. Like the thing that was the funniest is that I didn't understand. So we, I remember the very first shot we shot of that commercial, the first commercial I ever made. And it was a woman relaxing in a spa bath Mm. a mom because it was mm. a holiday commercial mm. and it was like quite a long it was quite a long shot wasn't mm. it and then we were going to go in and do mm. close-ups and it was the mm. first frame of the day and it was a bit steamy and I just remember the scene and the, the the kind of video village was over by the pool and we were somewhere else and 
I'm just, you've framed it and I'm ready to go. And then Stuart, the producer, came over and said, okay, they just want to check the frame. Mm. And I was kind of like, okay, like, all right, (laughs) okay, if they want. Like, you're sort of slowing (laughs) us up here, but okay. And then that happened. And then they wanted to check the frame again. And all the way through the morning to like lunch, you must have done four or five different setups. Oh, they just want to check the frame. I was like, okay, what do they do? Kind of right, if they want to. And then at lunch, he said, I don't think you've understood something. (laughs) They actually have to check the frame (laughs) what you can film like they have a say in they've got a say in what you're doing and i was like what the fuck are they really all those people have got a say in what we're that's gonna take hours if they're all gonna feed in but they didn't and so like things like that i just didn't know oh and that was the other thing i did on that day is i said and again the producer said to me she it was not it was janine she she said don't so they came over and said oh that was lovely that are you really happy and I probably, because I'm never that, I'm always, I'm happy to move on, but God, I'm, I could, probably could have done something more if we had more time, you know, it's that sort of, mm-hmm. so I didn't say, oh yeah, it was great, I think it was amazing, and like, I sort of went, yeah, it's okay, but if we, and she said, don't ever say you're not happy to them, yeah, <laughs> like it's, they'll, it's a performance, yeah, and it's it? just, yeah. that was the, that mm-hmm. morning, honestly, mm-hmm. by sort of one o'clock, mm-hmm. the penny had dropped, that like, this isn't just me on my own, I was just so used to having total freedom, I mean, you don't even have the freedom on a drama or on a scripted mm. thing that you have on documentary because there's no one there. Mm. There's no one else there. Like it's just you flying by the seat of your pants making all the decisions with your tiny crew. So so that was a great learning curve. And then I just learned the etiquette of those sets, those bigger sets mm. with lots it's, of departments. And the, the Being the kind of sole shooter, is that is that something you're gonna to wanna to go back to from time to time or is that a place you've kind of moved mm. on from now? I only self shot in the beginning to be able to make documentaries and that was a way of being able to do it and direct and mm. you know, and I learnt to shoot and because I'd worked, you know, I'd worked for Mike Figures for years, so I'd learnt to record sound mm. and I'd learnt to shoot and so I kind of could be a one man or one woman band for a little mm. bit and it just got me going and it was a mm. period when those first digital cameras came out that mm. weren't like big digi beaters those horror they were like small those smaller mm. and they were broadcast quality and i could and mike figures bought one of those so i learned to use that camera and that camera became the camera that i would say when would this have been like the sort of late 90s was a camera that if you could work it and use it you could make it the whole documentary on it mm. and it meant i got to make documentaries straight away like channel four and Mm. you know the BBC gave me that so and then I became known as quite a good like self-shooter because I wasn't I was good at framing and I was good at you know but I didn't and then I got very t- I think I got a bit lazy because that was the way I knew how to shoot mm. and so when I went on to something a bit bigger and and the suggestion came I'll use a you know use a documentary um camera operator I was a bit scared because I was like how do I keep it intimate if it's not just me mm. and this one person there's no one else there to interfere and and that was a great experience because then I realized, actually, I don't want to be fiddling with buttons. Mm. And, you know, once I trusted, it was a man, once I trusted him and we shot together a lot then, I was like, this is, I didn't ever want to go back to self-shooting. Mm. I didn't ever want to profess to be, I wasn't good at, you know, I think mm. it's like a sort of, it's not an insult or anything, but as you move through and you go, God, image, the image is so important and it's so beautiful. And I'm not an expert in making, creating that to the kind of optimum level mm. I was doing too many things I was interviewing someone I was mm. thinking where, should, where, where we should shoot I was trying to hit the sound levels right you know so to take that away and just concentrate on the performance and the storytelling was like honestly a liberation a creative mm. kind of that was a light bulb moment that was really you know I probably only made a couple of films and then I was like oh god I can use crew and then that has been a series of escalations mm. through my of like 
upping it and upping it and upping it and in the documentary form until I would say I don't know probably you know eight or seven or eight years ago people still didn't care enough about the image and then they started to care and I was probably part of that early like making things look exquisite and allowing that to be part of the journey of the story of the storytelling of the documentary not just kind of grabbing things but Mm. composing things and framing things and so so I just kind of uh, you know until I sort of um I don't really make documentaries so much now but that became a huge part of my um aesthetic I suppose was for it to look beautiful and still have the intimacy and still have the incredible you know storytelling it didn't matter if there were 30 Mm. people around it shouldn't matter Mm. do you um the sort of development of aesthetics in documentary what do you put that down to do you think that's to do with the technology and the ease of of getting more cinematic imagery um i mean i I guess the funding around shooting something on film Mm. if it's a documentary will be trickier Mm. do you think it's to do with the theatrical distribution Mm. now maybe Mm -hmm. kind of the whole kind of netflix world we're Mm -hmm. in oh well the netflix world is recent that's really Mm. changed things for sure I think there were some really um, significant big feature docs that, be, mm. that did really well at the cinema, yeah. you know, and were beautifully shot and would shot, you know, like if you think about like one day in September, like some of the kind of Kevin mm. McDonald that were mm. there and they got big money mm. and, you know, then, you know, Man on Wire, those mm. had things had huge money for a mm. documentary, not mm. huge money for a feature, a, mm. a, a, you know, a drama, a feature, but still big money and there was an ambition in those so I think that filtered down and there was more of a sense of you still don't have enough money Mm. so every time if I think about deep water you know we made that look exquisite and we had well it was a big budget for documentary but it was like a million Australian dollars which is half a million pounds Mm. you know and but we were trying to do things that people would have been doing with much more money so it's still we were still always limited but the ambition was there and the ambition was supported by the Mm. kind of funder for people in you know who are funding mm. those projects so i think it's filtered down and then you've netflix has changed the game in that they do really care about mm. you know their long series documentaries looking really brilliant mm. and you know filmmakers have come in that have, have probably come from drama and come from commercials and my aesthetic in documentary getting richer visually came from d- making commercials mm. definitely because i wanted and, and i learned like i learned the craft of um of of the how we do how we can do that how you can do that with not you know huge amounts of money and so um it kind of commercials gave me access to understanding all the tricks and the tools and you know what you can achieve and what you should aim to achieve actually what you you should you should ask to achieve you should Mm. demand from like the you know the people that are funding that's what you want yeah Talk a little bit about your kind of because you mentioned earlier about the collaborations from going from because you went from a soul shooter and then you started working with like you said heads of department that you felt at first you you were you know uh, kind of curious about what they could bring to your aesthetic and then you realise actually this is a liberation for mm. you and they could bring a lot. Um, mm. um, do you have a, a sort of is it down? Is it a lot? A lot of it down to sort of just personality uh, with the people you work with, or would you say it's it's? Um, do you have different ways of working with different kind of um, d- different heads of department, or is it kind of mm. what? What would you say is kind of the quality? The qualities you look for in mm. the people you collaborate with. Um, I think so. If I think about cinematography, because I think that's the the crucial department for me, other than the actors and the performers. I think that. I've got to have a sense that it's like the actors with me. I have to feel safe with them. 
I have to mm. know that they will collaborate and not be dictatorial. I want them to bring ideas. I don't want someone I can tell what to do. I want someone who's going to understand my vision and help me find it, help me kind of realize it, I should say. Um, so you do need someone that you feel like you're going to get on with. It's like mm. an editor. An editor's the other one. You mm. are going to spend more time with them than anyone else. So you've got to have a sort of, you've got to like, I feel mm. like for me, I've got mm. to want to be with that person. Mm. I've got to know that person's going to respect my ideas. But also like, tell me if it's not going to work and not be mm. afraid to say that so we don't waste time. So like, it's just all about being on an equal footing. Mm. So they feel empowered. I feel empowered. Mm. How best, and, and you know, that they're really creative and bringing something amazing that I'm not bringing. So they're adding something every time mm. that we're looking at a scene or looking at a shot, you know. Um, so collaborations everything and you've got to feel safe to be able to collaborate really well i think and get the best out of each other so how much do you think sharing the same taste in cinema plays a part in that it's mm, an interesting question um because i remember i was listening to actually a podcast you did with david reviews and mm. i remember you, you mentioned 70 cinema we never really spoke that much Didn't about we? cinema no not a lot but we shared we had an instinct that we shared a similar did you, kind of aesthetic. Did you love 70 cinema? Yeah. And were you then go, oh, she loves 70 yeah, cinema? Yeah, I know. It's the <laughs> first time I remember being yeah. surprised by I that, but not surprised by that. Yeah, no, time. we didn't. So I suppose that, I suppose if you turned around to me and said, God, I hate Drugstore Cowboy, thinks it's mm. shittest, mm. you know. I mean, Midnight Cowboy, Midnight sorry. Cowboy, yeah. <laughs> sorry, Drugstore Cowboy. Midnight Cowboy. Mm. Like, I'm trying to think of all the 70 films that are so amazing. I'd be like, really? What? You don't? Mm. Like, I'd find that peculiar yeah. to not understand the humanity in that and yeah. the beauty in the way it's yeah, shot yeah. and yeah. everything. So I suppose I would have probably slight alarm bells if like if someone really really couldn't stand something that i thought told you something about them mm. i don't know it's more probably about mm. the storytelling you mm. know like um i i think it is important i think it becomes important more so when you start getting sent references so i've just worked with this cinematographer in australia called bonnie elliott and the, the when i really and i of course i looked at her work and i loved her work and she's incredibly respected and and but as soon as she started sending me references and some of them were still photography someone that like because mm. the film i'm making is like a it's literally like she, a collage. she was sending you references yeah so just yeah, like like mood boards like so she, was, she literally would yeah. do like an instagram page and just have like i'll look at this jürgen teller photography and, da, 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 and what about this and i like reflections and it's not that i want this but i like the way the light like because we were shooting in this incredible australian landscape and we were bringing in lots of bright artificial yeah. light yeah it's so like pinks and yellows that we were then yeah. you know so it was like she was so her references were when i went oh my god she totally gets this right this is a really good uh totally kind of point, gets point this. for our listeners actually because you know a lot of them are young filmmakers uh, dops in particular uh, i've never usually taken initiative and given references before i'm in that dialogue with someone yeah. i think that's great that she did that that she she put together a a series that almost seduced you with kind yeah, of with, boards with, yeah. she did like mood boards yeah she literally did mood boards it was amazing no one that i was the same i was like no one's ever done that she's mm. like i'll go onto instagram i've done a little page for you mm. and even had some little tiny video feel like mm. little links to videos and yeah i thought it was so i was i was also blown yeah. away and i thought that was such a clever way to get, to get inside a director's yeah. head yeah. and then you have something tangible mm. to talk mm. about yeah and actually lots of references are better than almost like well because sort of i suppose i wouldn't want someone to say well i want it to look like you know <laughs> little women or i yeah. want it to look like something that's just been shot by another director like if someone was yeah. said you know i think lots of references that speak well, she, to the she kind was of fishing to find what you were in, interested in and yeah. then she'd narrow it down presumably. yeah 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 and well, then she, we would do boards for like then once we 
she was mm. shooting it and we were on it and we were in pre-production because we're trying to work out because it is really kaleidoscopic the film it's like about these two artists and the way they worked was very layered mm. the whole thing's about layers so it's like la- image upon image and mm. then taking the layers away and 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 so we use loads of um like refractors in front of the lens so there's lots mm. of layers like kaleidoscopic layers even mm. when we were shooting but um it was a really good way to sort of at, before we entered the, the the first day of photography to both of us have a really clear intent mm-hmm. and ambition and then I went to a camera test with her because we had these ideas about putting like paint we put paint in fish tanks and shot oh, through the fish tanks yeah. and is she, she working just long form or she works in commercials as well no she doesn't work in commercials at all but she does do some sort of short installation art films right, okay. which she can like yeah. she went to the film school in Australia but she does do those yeah. sorts of things I think she did a couple of commercials early on in her career but she's only long form mm. and mainly mainly um, scripted but also documentaries mm. okay more occasional mm. documentaries mm. but um, yeah so then by then when we were testing and mm. really testing with all these different like you know like pyramid things in mm. front of the lens and then the, the paints and the we mm. really understood what we were both hoping mm. to achieve mm. you know fishing around and playing still and being mm. you know creative but we sort of had an ambition that was clear mm. um that kind of visual journey that you go on with documentary um h- how much of how much of it is informed by your choice of location would you say or is it something that you get kind of actively involved with where you shoot certain scenes or mm. is it just a given kind of that you have to stay authentic to kind of what's happening mm depends it really depends on the project I would say like of course some documentaries are rooted in a time and a place and they have to Mm. be in that time Mm. and place depending on what the story is Um, this had two elements like it's the women both live truly live in in, one lives virtually off grid and she's like 70 and sleeps outside in a tin hut in like the most majestic Australian landscape Mm. with kangaroos everywhere and wallabies Mm. and you know and bush and burnt bush because of the bushfires Mm. and like so obviously I needed to shoot in that place. And also their work, their artistic work is very connected to the land. Mm. So this film had to be about mm. the landscapes that are reflected in their artwork or mm. in their fabrics or in mm. their fashion. And then the other lady too, she lives in the Blue Mountains, which is a place that's like of incredible beauty, but it's surrounded by like Australian wildflowers. And mm. the flowers, the waratah, which is this Australian flower that comes out for six weeks, mm. came out whilst we were there. And that is her symbol. That's like her totem. So mm. the landscape in this became mm. crucial. But most of the film is based on, because they've, they've been artists for 40 years, is on archival material. So mm. they all have their own, they filmed everything and there's mm. just masses of that there's sort of three elements and then i needed to do present day interviews with Mm. a chorus like a greek chorus and there was a big decision around do you put those people in their like their environment you know Mm. that a lot of them are interesting they would live in nice houses and things but Mm. we decided to create a studio space and bring jenny and linda's floor like landscapes to them so Mm. we made this really conscious choice of doing a really it is an artificial space but bringing Mm. in like wildflowers they're the most amazing kind of sculptural floral Mm. backgrounds that the interviews have that are that are meadowy and wild and some are more australian wildflower and some are like gum trees Mm. and so that was like a that was a specific decision to use Mm. a, a, a location just a studio but not Mm. make it feel like it's just you know there's so much yeah, look, the studio can really work for certain things. It was just mm. the way to do it. So sometimes, like, I think 
I do think location matters. I think it depends on how much of it is retrospective as well. Mm. Like Deep Water was a really retrospective story. We were going mm. back in time to tell mm. this story. And so we, we, we again emulated, we used the real landscapes that those events had happened in. We went mm. back to those landscapes. We went back to the beaches. We went back to the toilets where men were murdered. We went back to the cliffs. Mm. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Because I think it makes mm. it visceral and present tense when you're mm. telling something that's, you know, a past story, a story. It depends on what the, you know, because mm. then you see wonderful things. There's this really good documentary series called, um, that's on the BBC called Once Upon a Time in Iraq, I think it is. Mm. And it's the story of the Iraq war, but through the eyes of a, a really interesting array of people. So like, you know, people who just lived in various cities in Iraq, people who fought you know for mm. the Iraqis people who fought mm. for the Americans it's like a re journalists mm. and it's just all in a studio of mm. course it's loads of archive they go to archive mm. but the entire thing is mm. and then were, it's were just, you influenced by that when you'd made a decision to have your studio floral sequences I, I didn't want it to be I thought that carried being just a black mm. space because mm. it was like it's a black space mm. it carried it because there was no reason to bring mm. Iraq into that mm. room because mm. it was so visceral and what that's but for us I think just given the, the nature of the documentary that I'm making, it's really an art film. It's about two artists who their entire, the essence of their work is about colour. They're mm. obsessed with colour and what mm. colour does and colour brings to people and the landscape. So they directly took from the Australian landscape in their work and mm. they were constantly reflecting on what Australia was through landscape and through iconography, buildings mm. and things as well. So it felt like you, I would ne it would felt wrong to have a space that was mm. didn't reflect... Mm. the essence of the world we were in so that's why we brought so much color and floral into mm. those spaces um could you talk a little bit more about the other influences that your your stinting commercials has helped you with uh, the documentaries you're making now what did influences you, yeah. meaning in what sense influences what, into the, the way you work film in, oh yeah. the way i've worked your in working commercials well, yeah so the things you kind of inherited with the Kind from of documentary to commercials. Well, actually, from documentary to commercials, from commercial back Just, to documentary will be and, in, yeah. Both oh right, really. back to doc. Well, that that's what that is exact. That's when I feel like I've done my best work in documentary is having had the commercial experience. I think yeah. I had the marriage yeah. of all the things that I think are really important. So I felt like I'm always I'm already skilled now and experienced in getting great story out of people, mm. interviewing them, making them feel comfortable, telling and honoring their stories like that yeah. I've got. Yeah. And what commercials taught me to do is how to care about like, you know, every image. Yeah. So like, you know, cause going from making things that are 90 minutes long to two minutes long or 30 seconds long. Yeah. It's that kind of paring down of like each of, yeah. image, like yeah. storyboarding. I yeah. love storyboarding. I've realized yeah. I never thought I'd be someone that liked that. Yeah. Cause I sort of didn't, initially I resisted storyboarding cause I didn't like that's the opposite of documentary yeah. being forced into making a decision yeah, yeah. before yeah. you've even arrived on set yeah, yeah. but i actually love the discipline mm. of it and i've taken it into now doing scripted mm. work mm. but so i liked learning how to craft and how powerful the the individual images and how mm. much story you can pack into so mm. what it was allowing me to do was use like so i've got the basis of being able to tell good story and, and make and great get great performances from people and now it's about having those two things work more beautifully together, mm. the image and the, the fundamentals mm. of the storytelling mm. and the performance. So how do you craft a beautiful mm. image that's going to tell, pack a bigger emotional punch? Yeah. And actually really thinking about how imagery is going to heighten 
the feeling of a documentary mm. and care about it rather mm. than just like you know f- following mm. someone walking around a street mm. like you don't necessarily isn't the right images yeah. to be playing over that sentiment so mm. just giving much more care and attention to it and knowing how to achieve um high-end beautiful imagery mm. that can be crafted around mm. and make it more potent make the story or you know the whole experience a cinematic experience so commercials directly i mean absolutely directly taught me to do that and take that into mm. a documentary world mm. and aesthetic completely um and as i rarely make them so i've made since the really my commercials days i've made deep water and i'm making this one now but they're both are you allowed cinematic to us, are you allowed to tell us the name of it it's so, well at the moment it's called step into paradise that's the working title is it? i think can it will you, be yeah. the title right okay yeah um, and can you tell us a little bit about it? Or? So it's based on the lives of two Australian... In Australia, they're sort of well-known and famous. Um, they started off as fashion designers and in the 70s. And they, um, they're they interesting because they were part of... Jenny Key in particular, one of the women's called Jenny Key. She came over to London in the 60s. You know, all the Aussies that came over and mm. just ripped it up creatively you know so you know clive james and richard Mm. neville and jermaine greer and just this kind of robert hughes these intellectual australians that came in the 60s and had started oz magazine and did all sorts of extraordinary things and and had a real imprint on the the kind of swinging london she was part Mm. of that and she's quite a well-known figure in that at that time and what's interesting about and same and the other woman linda was meanwhile traveling through like the far east and papua new guinea and doing the hippie trail and and they were already creative young artists, artists, bohemians. And they both chose to go back to Australia in the early 70s, which if you if you don't know anything about Australia, but in the early 70s was like there had been a conservative government, a, ex- extremely kind of pro-monarchy government all through the 50s and 60s. And at the end, the beginning of the 70s, someone called Gough Whitlam became the prime minister and he was revolutionary. Like he was a liberal and he was... He cared passionately about the arts and he cared about women's issues and Aboriginal land rights. And he mm. just was like these sweeping changes. What happened in those years from like 72 to 74 mm. was like more change happened. And that's when like Peter Weir directed Picnic. Like mm. all the best films started being mm. made, like early 70s Pic- Australian Picnic cinema, at Picnic Rock. at yeah, Hanging Rock, Rock yeah. and, and, and incredible Australian cinema, incredible mm. books, you know, mm. all the incredible authors who became, you know, Booker Prize winning. They mm. were all writing. It was just mm. this surge of like having been this very mm. kind of stilted, backward, conservative, mm. bland mm. place that looked to England, looked to Europe for its kind of cultural cachet, was now going, fuck it, like, this is interesting. Mm. What we have here is amazing. Mm. And, like, it was the first moment of going, let's not be a colony anymore. Mm. Let's look to what we have and mm. what's interesting about this place. And and so all these young artists sort of stayed mm. and a lot of them like Brett Whiteley and people, there was all these sort of inter- interesting things mm. happening in the, the art world and the film world and the fashion world. And these two women were the fashion sort of icons of that time. Right. And they created this look and this shop and this label and this, that mm. was ama- incredible. No one had done anything like it. And it ended up being incredibly lauded overseas. Like mm. it's Italian Vogue did huge thread spreads on it in the New York Times. Mm. And it, it was this moment of like, so there's the two women that started that. And they then went on to become sort of painters and textiles designers. And they had, you know, their, their work was now being toured around the world as art, not just fashion. Mm. It was like, is it fashion? Is it art? It's all those sort of ideas. And so it's really a bigger story about their love of their love of Australia, their love of each other. They weren't mm. lovers, but mm. they fell in love as mm. friends and they mm. fell in love as collaborators. Mm. 
and they've been friends for 40 years so they're in their 70s and they're still these creative incredible force fields and mm. so I was drawn to it because a well I'd said no to the project twice but I met them and you've got to see them I mean they're visual the way they're the most stylish women you've ever seen if you actually when you see them when I show you pictures mm. of them, you'll go I get it they're like the most extraordinary creatures and dress in the most exquisite and how old are they now 73 and 70 and so and they're I, still into their art and yeah, they're still going strong living yeah. in this yeah. in these incredible That's landscapes very inspiring. it's yeah. so inspiring and there are believe me there are few women mm. artists mm. and women kind of designers that are going still in their 70s mm. so it's a film about longevity and age mm. and being a woman and being creative mm. and being a you know people that collaborate for that time mm. and you know and obviously they've lived long lives so they've had all sorts mm. of personal tragedies and um so it's a really hard film to make though because mm. it's kind of like this collage of lots of stuff there's and they're too, also, is there too much choice almost, there's so, way too yeah. much choice mm. at the moment and that's where documentary and that's mm. why i said i wouldn't do it because i'm sort of they're so hard to edit you know mm. to to get it to the place where you've boiled the soup down to like mm. what are the five mm. important mm. things i'm trying to say here mm. takes a really long time and that process of finding out the essence of what you're trying to say your kind of your point you're trying to make is that something that is an organic process for you or do you kind of have a, a, an instinct for that s straight off the bat no it took me a while to find the heart of this and I still think I'm finding it I think I have a really clear sense of what it shouldn't be mm. like I really know it shouldn't be like you know Linda was born in Jenny was born in Bondi in 1950 and she, you know it's not that it's mm. a it's a piece of art to reflect mm. them as artists mm. I know that what thematically is important and I've got to get across like I know what you know this kind of love affair with each other with the landscape it's a celebration i haven't made a film for a long time that's really celebratory but has darkness in it as well mm. um it's a it's so to find those things i know what they are i what will sing the loudest you know because there's a lot of storytelling in both of their lives there's lots of story beats like i did the story beat sheet the other day i wrote down mm. all the story beats and i mean it's like you could make 10 episodes you know could make 10 one mm. hour it's so it's that i don't know yet like mm. that like what are those most important salient things that will drive this narrative mm. on I, that is still that will come out in the wash of the edit so you you must have a, um a fair bit of trust in in finding is that what documentaries taught you yeah. a kind of trust in yeah. knowing you'll find a story not to sweat I yeah. think that's what I'm good on you know I don't sweat the small stuff you've probably noticed yeah I have yeah. a faith that things will yeah. work out and you'll find a way through I definitely have that and that also might be age that also might be experience mm. like I definitely kind of know it'll be okay and yeah. it'll, it'll it feels at the moment even I feel a bit like oh god is this gonna work is it is it going to make say? Is it going to? Does anyone care? You know, like mm. I feel a bit like that. And then, and I'm writing a drama at the moment. This drama that I've been writing for, it came out of a documentary project I never made. That's, and that's the same. Like I know it's amazing, but I have like I, I'm sure. But then I'm like, is it? Would anyone ever watch this? Is it only me that's mm. interested? You know, like it's it's hard to. I think everyone has that, don't they? To retain the faith in an idea. Do you? Um, do you kind of? notice that something starts taking on a life of its own and you kind of follow follow the life that you've kind of created in a way and yes does I that do. kind of talk back to you yeah i think that happens and then i think that can stop for a while and then it mm. has to start up again because right. the production process is so long so mm. you might have the idea you develop it into a drama you're then writing mm. that gets stopped for a bit you know like you've got to retain the faith but mm. it, i think when you start um i'm writing two things at the moment and both the dramas 
they do take on a life of their mm. own completely absolutely when you have the time to sit and write and allow the characters to breathe and to move around and to definitely and how would you say writing informs you as a director writing your, writing your own I, mat- your own materials opposed yeah. to adapting something else I think I write and someone told me this I write completely with images in my head so I probably over explain too much how something should look someone told me that recently about a lot of when directors write scripts not all but they often do lots of explaining of the actual shots and with so I do I see it mm. so I literally see see it in my head as I'm writing it it's not just about what they're saying to each other or and is that just uh, kind of uh, you know th- th- I guess there's different kinds of the way we see the world we see the world sonically or, or, or you know or visually or whatever I mean I'm certainly visual and, yeah. and clearly so you is that something that you would say that it's always been the case or something that's developed with your love of cinema or your your career as a director I think that's developed I don't yeah. think I used to think as visually as I do now mm. I think when I write now even when I do a treatment for commercials I, I see the I see the shots and I kind of have imagined a room and it won't be that room because we haven't even looked at locations yeah. yet so I definitely that has been honed that has yeah. definitely been honed from probably um, pitching ideas which I've had to do a lot of writing treatments for commercials because that's mm. another discipline I bloody hate it but it does make you have to think about how you would realize mm. this sort of few pieces of pa- you know a few mm. pages you've been sent from a creative team mm. um, which is a good that's been a really good journey like good discipline actually, to learn a, good, isn't a really it? Yeah. good discipline definitely the shorthand of uh, I think people don't really appreciate sometimes by watching commercials the shorthand the, the skill of shorthand that yeah. goes into doing something efficiently within 30 seconds or within Definitely. a minute. Definitely. Because when I first um, started making commercials, the first few storyboards, I've still got, I'm still good mates with the storyboard artist. I remember I'd like boarded, you know, I should have really boarded like 22 shots and I'd boarded like 38. Because mm. that would have been how I thought, like, because in documentary it's so easy to just, I'm just going to turn the camera around because we don't really care about the lighting. Mm. We don't like, you're just going to, coverage is so quick and simple and Mm. you know so I came in with a sort of more laissez-faire lazy probably and then being forced to go no no no, you literally that shot's going to take like again Stuart saying that shot's going to be two seconds long Mm. this is only 30 seconds Mm. you can't have 40 you've already you've already made it like 60 seconds Mm. so that was really hard and I really resisted it and I really Mm. didn't like it because I felt like my freedom was being curtailed and my creative freedom was being curtailed but all it was is I'd, I'd formed a habit a creative habit that was probably mm. lazy but served a particular genre of filmmaking mm. and this now I needed to become much more decisive and mm. clearer and actually I've really I think that process has been really great and even to the degree that now like I'm pitching on this drama to direct and there's some car scenes in it and I haven't shot much car stuff so she was like how will you do it and I said I'll storyboard it mm. how can I like if I sit mm. with a cinematographer and a storyboard artist mm. and the designers we you can't can visualize the whole thing yeah yeah like it's like mm. if you're nervous that i haven't mm. done that then mm. it's it's okay i know the way to do it mm. and i know mm. that i don't have to be the it was you that said this to me i don't have to be the expert in everything mm. and i think i felt like when i came onto a commercial set for the first time where you feel like the imposter is you don't think you're allowed to not know and that's that i say i would say that's for sure women suffer for them for that mm. from that much more than men because women don't put their hand up when they're not quite ready and experienced enough to do it. Yeah. They wait till they've got all the experience and then mm. go, because they, because you're scared of failing because you perhaps think that people expect, because you're, un, you're unexpected anyway, being on the set. You're un, it's unusual, not so much 
now but certainly I mean still mm. now in certain places but mm. so you feel like I better have all the answers particularly I find particularly female cinematographers suffer from this fear that they don't they're not technical enough yeah and I always said to them you know the, the ones I get to talk to the students I get to talk to I'm always saying you don't have to be technical to be a cinematographer you have a focus pillar you have you know you have people around you you have a, a strong gaffer a strong focus pillar you don't you just need to be able to communicate yeah. what it is in your mind that you want to convey that's then, amazing you saying that because I would have thought I'm a, like you would have said to me you don't have to be that technical you don't need to know about all the lens you know I do know about lenses now but you don't need to know this and you don't and actually the fact that you can even say that to a cinematographer is even more yeah. heartening yeah <laughs> well, it, it's true I mean you, you need to be a visual psychiatrist more than you need to be a technician yeah because you have great technicians yeah you know having a great focus pillar and a great gaffer literally you can let them do yeah. everything for you, but what they need from you is your leadership and what they're actually going to do. Yeah. Um, but they'll, you know, to know every light. I mean, sometimes it's, it's about working with people that uh, aren't going to use that against, hold that against you. Yeah. So you have a gaffer, for example, and if you're not talking to them in the language that they understand, they might have a problem with that. But most really good gaffers would will, will, will quite happily take on the role of choosing a light for you. Yeah. If you can communicate to them the kind of quality of light that you want. Yeah then they'll they'll happily do that and if they're really good gaffers and have had a lot of experience with light then they can semi-light the scene for you and you can just be turning the odd light yeah. off to get the, the you know and as you go as you grow you'll learn from your yeah. crew that's so interesting because that makes me feel even better about like because you definitely did help me by making saying to me you don't have to have all the answers you don't have to know all the you know technical or every technical thing you just need to tell me what it is you want and what you're trying to achieve and why and then I've always held that I've always held that so I've not felt like it's okay to go I'm not sure what do you mm. think you know mm. that's okay but it does take a while to have the confidence to think no one's going to judge you for mm. that and it's not going to mean that you're you don't know what you're doing and mm. but I definitely I definitely um feel safer in saying I'm not sure and that that's okay well that's I mean that's being vulnerable is actually quite brave to yeah. show vulnerability is actually quite a brave thing yeah. to do I think people mistake that you know vulnerability for weakness when it's absolutely yeah. you know, so to be willing to be vulnerable yeah. is actually I remember I, I listened to a lot of a guy called do you, do you know Alanda Botan yeah, yeah. I love read lots yeah. of his books yeah, yeah. I, I listen to him quite a lot and he's always talking about um, the first question you should ask someone is how are you crazy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you meet them and just show immediately show vulnerability to yeah. each other and you yeah. have a far richer human experience yeah. if you do yeah. that oh I'm you... always trying to work out like especially with actors what's their crazy like because right. if I know oh you're you're just really insecure about your performance okay I'm really good with that mm. I can help that but mm. if it's like oh no they're a total uh, egomaniac narcissist then I'm like oh I'm not so good with them yeah. <laughs> like, I'll have to go in armed in a different way like I know the yeah. kind of crazy that suits me mm. that I yeah, like yeah. you know it's like there's ones that I'm not uh, that worry me that scare me as well have you ever had to deal with a uh, kind of narcissist mm, I've worked for one I've worked for mm. people I've worked I haven't yet as a performer but that will come that's no mm. doubt coming but how did you uh, deal I've worked with, with people for that oh, I'm not very good I've got to say I'm not very good with like, with people I think have got agendas for the sake of mm. that that's a different thing I suppose I could mm. probably just deal with a narcissist I think I think more about people who've got agendas that aren't do you have a an authority issue at all? Do you like to? Are you quite an independent thinker, and, and you don't like to kind of deal with the kind of status quo? Or is it? Um, I think I'm quite. I think I'm mostly. I don't know. It depends on who and what and how it's being delivered. Mm, I mean, mm. it really does. I'm not. I wouldn't be good with dic, you know diktats. Yeah. I wouldn't definitely. That yeah. would because that's not the nature of 
the beast like mm. we're in a collaborative mm. medium and i think i'm really good at collaborating but i'm also got a clear i think mostly i've got a really clear vision mm. i don't know you you've i think i know what you, i want that's right you, you see that's the thing but I i'm was, collaborative yeah to, to, the important thing is to have a kind of point of view yeah and i have a point very, of view yeah if you have a point of view then that's all you kind of yeah. need you just need to start with a point of view yeah now, and I, even I, if it's wrong it's okay yeah, it's okay if exactly you, yeah if you, that's it's better to have a wrong point of view than no point of view yeah. no point of view is a disaster yeah it was just like flailing yeah. about isn't yeah, it yeah, and like yeah. no i think that's the, the thing is to have a point of view and that can be changed and, and to be willing to be updated to have the confidence so like you said that kind of trust it will reveal it itself to you yeah. um, but you've got to start in a direction you've got to kind of plow into a direction yeah. or otherwise you're just like you say you're frozen with fear on the film yeah. set which is no good for yeah. anyone yeah. yeah I was going to say something you were saying before I was thinking about when you're saying about like like the cinematographers young females like not having to know everything as well I was thinking like about that I think and who I like to work with I think when I think about like cinematographers who I think are amazing and are helping me and it'd be the same with production designers as well is when I know they know the story what infuriates me is if I think you haven't even really read this scene like mm. because if you th- if you've read the scene and perhaps you haven't understood the scene that's different mm. and if but if you've read you've like because actually what we decide to do with the camera if it's a if if there's a particular there's a particular point of view or there's a particular psychology or this particular emotion we have to we have to be illuminating that we have to be mm. pushing that we have to be mm. and so you know you might be slowly pushing in you might be pulling out you might be trying but there has mm. to be a reason why we're doing that mm. sometimes it can just be you want movement because it needs to have a pace because mm. of what you've just come out of but mm. I think when I I think it frustrates me when I think someone throws up an idea that's just random because it would be a good mm. thing to do because it would look good. Yeah. Not like, yes. actually, this should be yeah. looking great, of course. That goes without saying, but it should be adding. Yeah, I totally agree. Adding to gr- it. That's what I like. It's gratuitous work. Yeah, oh, let's work. just go, let's just yeah. shoot on anamorphic. I've heard that. Yeah. And I'm like, but why? Mm. Like, I love that. Mm. I agree. But like, we've got to have a reason because I've also mm. got to go back and sell that to someone. Mm. And that, you know, like, so something recently I'm pitching on really should be animal. Mm. Like I really, and mm. there's really strong reasons why it should be. And mm. thankfully they agree and they've been having the same conversation. But there's other things I think there's actually no need. But like that's just a sort of one mm. example. But I think that's, it's knowing that someone cares about the project like you do. I know they mm. maybe will never quite care as much as you do because it's your mm. baby often. Mm. But when you feel that from your crew that's when it's amazing yeah i mean i think that's what separates um teach young cinematographers to care about the story and yeah. show they care about it yeah not just to demonstrate how it look good yeah exactly yeah I, I think there's another level up from your technically proficient cinematographers the next step up is the ones that are storytellers yeah a visual like i said visual psychiatrists they kind of understand you know when you speak to the great you know when you hear the great cinematographers speak they rarely talk about technical matters they talk about stories they talk about art they talk about you know they get they get influenced by paintings for example they'll talk they'll talk about the use of light and stuff like that but they very rarely talk about you know they ask questions by manufacturers why do you use this lens why do you use that but that's a common misconception uh the technique the the, the technical products and the value of those products in somehow informs um the storytelling i don't Mm. think that's the case mm. and I think it's really important to try and get that out of your system as soon as you can as a mm. cinematographer particularly because there is a kind of there is a kind of kind of fetish around equipment mm. with young mm. cinematographers and they kind of judge each other on how many how many expensive bits of equipment they have on a film set I mean directors can suffer from this as well mm. it's like they're desperate to shoot on film 
you know, it's like, why, but why do you want to shoot on film? Mm. Do you know what the strengths of film are and do you know what the weaknesses are? Because there's a lot of weaknesses as well with shooting on film. Um, anyway, um, mm. do your, your reason for choosing anamorphic on this job coming up? What well, I? if I shoot it, it's because it's... Um, I can't really tell you about it because it's but it's because of the psychology of um, the main character who's having a breakdown um, and the world they're in and he's a sort of authority figure who's having a breakdown in a particular world that's that's always coming at him that's always scallies and crime and edgy things people it's like it's an non-stop and it's also the other thing i think it should feel the whole thing should feel like it's moving there's almost an argument to shoot the whole thing on steadicam slightly it should feel kind of woozy, frenetic kind of, yeah. and should feel like just as he's re, re, regrouping or finding carbs yeah, something shifting. else comes yeah, at him yeah. so it's just this thing and the landscapes it's like goes from sort of quite um you know, big British crumbling sea landscapes, you know, beach-ish places to estates and to like vacant land. And, and there's always other characters. I just felt the feeling of it being like the Wild West, mm. but in the north of England slightly. Yeah. You know, like... A, and this is a documentary for No, 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 it's a drama. This is a drama. Yeah. This is the one you're yeah. writing it's, at the moment. No, so. this is something I'm pitching on to direct. Right. So it's been, it's, right. it's a commission. Yeah. BBC yeah. drama commission. So yeah. could you talk a little bit about your transition from documentary into drama then and what you've what you've kind of... It's ongoing. Um, I've found it's... God, what have I... I'm I love it I, I I really it's funny that I've gone so far the other way like to now everything being completely scripted and controlled and, and are you going to be casting actors as opposed yeah. to so you're not going to street cast and you know um, but how as your your experience of working getting performances out of real people and being able to to kind of manipulate real situations to, to, to tell a story mm. how would that inform you do you think with um, I think on set it means because like when I shot even the Windsors I think it means I shoot quite fast which is I'm not saying that's good or bad but mm. I'm not I don't and that's good because you know scripted TV just certainly has got a pressure mm. you know you've got to get through whatever number of pages a day mm. um, and I don't mean I shoot fast for the sake of it but I think I have quite a kind of once we're lit, I have quite a um, strong sense of like when the performance is like we've got mm. it and it's not mm. going to be better and we don't need to do seven takes, mm. you know, that we can move forward. So to keep that energy, I like keeping the energy live and, al mm. and, and, and for the actors, you know, mm. so they're not sitting around all the time because they mm. sit around enough, you know. Mm. Um, I'd rather be on set and ha be able ready to roll and have them be able to play with it a bit more than, you know, lose lots of time mm. with... Um, so I've learnt, I've learnt a lot about, um, you know, because you block entire scenes out before you shoot them, obviously you rehearse them. I think the blocking out thing is, that's when you need a really good collaborative cinematographer. Mm. Are you using Because where camera? you're going to earn up, end up, you know, like you might shoot like, but where's the, you know, all of that, mm. having someone that can really mm. help you work the maths out of that. So mm. that the way that you design the scene, yeah. you, you actually design the scene, you don't get stuck, you don't get to end up mm. in some corner, you know, yeah. making sure that that's all working beautifully and adding all the added value that should be being added to their performances. And Do you prefer to work with a single camera or do you? Um, I don't mind. I think sometimes it's really helpful for speed. Mm. But I, I like single camera. I'm sort of comfortable with single camera. It's kind of where I started and... Mm. But um, some things require it, like just there's time-wise and, and mm. you know, 
big huge scenes with lots of people require it like mm. that's something like succession i think they have like four cameras all the time and mm. and it wouldn't be for those i'm sure they don't have them for the scenes where it's like two or three people mm. but those big dinners and things mm. where there's like 14 of them and you kind of get that sense mm. imagine how long it would i don't know if you've seen it but to shoot some of those scenes with just you know if you had single cameras like yeah. i think there's a real um, benefit to having more cameras when you need them to yeah. cover all the material and have that kind of incredible potent performance and not having to wait around to mm. i like um i like the discipline though of scripted it's a bit like yeah it's it's quite military in a way you mm. know like it's it's got a really it's got a form that works same as commercials you know how it's got a system and the system mm. works and within the system you can be really free but there's a sort of safety mm. net of the system yeah I, I talk a lot uh, uh, with my crew about the importance of hierarchy I said yeah and you know, I say to them, my only job on set is to look after the director and your only job on set is to look after me yeah and then your assistant's and my only, only job, job on is set. to look after the actors yeah. really yeah, and yeah. probably the image yeah. with you but yeah yeah yeah, so I said, you know, if I can make the director happy, then we're all going to get re-employed. Yeah. If I can't do that, then we're not going to be able to do that. And I just expressed the importance of when we're having a conversation, if, if I'm talking with the director, that they're listening to everything we say, because yeah. that's c- clues to where we're going next. Yeah. And they should anticipate where we're going next. They shouldn't be yeah. reacting to things. That's, they're too, the reaction's too slow. It needs yeah. to be anticipation based that's on so true. instincts. It's, it's so true. And it's so hard, actually, as director, to hold all that, because you are... You've got to be in the scene you're shooting, immersed completely, but you know there's something coming up. You know, it's that constant thing of like Mm. the pressure of like what's next. Um, I've got to lose that a bit, I think. I think I worry a bit more than I should about are we running over and all that just because I don't want to, again, it's that I don't want to fail by the end Mm. of the day and have dropped a scene or, you know, I think I've got to let go of that a bit. How important is your relationship with a producer? Is it, do you have uh, producers that you're going to kind of, do you think you're going to work on on um, a series of works together or do you you choose them based on each project? I think it's a really important relationship particularly in drama because the producer's got a huge amount of power and they they look after the whole project you know um, from the very early days and early stages and if you have a good relationship with your producer that's just an ally it's such an important ally to have if you if anything if your actors are unhappy for some reason, you know, even if it's extraneous things not to do with this, you know, it's just, it's so important. If you had a fractious relationship with your producer, I think it would be really hard. Mm. I would find it really hard. I think you need the support, you know. Mm. And they're good on story. They're also on top of the story. They're on top of the script. So, you know, the writers are usually on set mm. for um, drama and comedy. Mm. So they're there all the time. So that, you know, then sometimes you might not agree with a note you're getting from the writer, but you're still, you know, the producer's there to help iron stuff mm. like that out. It's like a, a bit, bit like, like commercials, 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 actually. Yeah. They iron all those different relationships mm. out. Yeah. And they're really, so really do, important. So do the notes from the, uh, from the writer usually go through the producer to you or do you ever have It direction? depends. I think that the etiquette on the Windsors, because the writers got to know me quite well, they didn't mind just coming and telling me. Mm. But that's as we went on and they got mm. comfortable and because I didn't mind, but I think some directors would mind and so it would go through the producer. Mm. In the beginning it went through the producer and mm. then it was easier to just come to me. Mm. And those notes, uh, how, what's your sort of strategy for including the directors, uh, those, the writers 
notes notes are tricky aren't they yeah. <laughs> i think when the notes are good they're good and like mm. that's great mm. it's only when you don't agree with the note yeah so, so what do you do i suppose if i had a good if i had a really good producer i'd talk to the producer about it maybe mm. it's better to just shoot yeah but if you're going to shoot a version that you really 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 don't want to use yeah, that you really think isn't that. you've got yeah. to be careful and yeah. not give up yeah. and maybe it's a point to stop yeah. and discuss and like yeah. Um, but if it's a good note, yeah. that's okay. Yeah, that's a, t- a tip I give to people as well. But if you don't want it in there yeah. and you really hate the idea of yeah. that and you think it changes the nature of the storytelling, then you've yeah. got to fight for it. Yeah, because sometimes I'm, I'm told to shoot something, doesn't matter, we won't use it. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah, who's going who's gonna to guarantee that? Because yeah. otherwise we won't shoot it then. Yeah. You know, if you're definitely not going to use it, then let's not shoot it. Because there's always a chance that you're going to use it. Yeah. And you got, you know, sometimes you don't like something because you think it's not going to get used, and that's yeah. a, it goes and it's heartbreaking. So, yeah, yeah. yeah you have to be careful. You're right. You have to be careful of that. Yeah. Um, and contradictory notes. I mean, I had that a few. Yeah. That is, that is absolutely. I actually, you've got to put your foot down then. Mm. You've got. It's too confusing for the actor. It's too. You know, it's like you just can't do. Mm. If you've got two or three writers and they've all got different, just can't do it. Mm. they've got to work out what they're doing first and that's a good that's a good producer that's a producer that should be managing that and come mm. with one clear note because mm. it must be really infuriating for actors to get lots of notes that feel contradictory do you think uh, you do your best work with repeated um, on on jobs where you've worked with someone before for example cinematographers would you say that you build a relationship yeah. and you, you improve yeah. over um, like yeah. I say, a series of works together Completely, I can see why there's those people that just worked with yeah. the same cinematographers yeah. and the same producers. And if you have a good working relationship, your work is only going to get honed and get better and better. I mean, maybe it comes a point where you're not, you're getting lazy or something. But I, mm. I can't imagine that. I yeah. think, I think that I absolutely love going back to people I have a really good shorthand mm. with and who I know what they'll bring and mm. like. It just it frees you up to do really amazing work. If I agree. You've got I that totally support. agree. I think there's two kinds of in commercials. There's two kinds of directors. There's ones that like to build up a family, uh, and they want to collaborate with you on a series of jobs together. And the first job is a kind of feeling out process, and then there's a little bit of trust built. And by your third job, you're completely instinctive with mm. each other, which that that's when I think you do your best work. Mm. And then there's the other kind of directors that like believe that. DOPs, different DOPs are suited for different jobs. Mm. So they'll have someone that, you know, they'll bring a different DOP in for each job. They'll basically cast the DOP like they'll cast the actors. And it's a kind of, you know, it's like that DOP is suited for this. Mm. Um, but I always think that, you know, when I look at my favourite filmmakers, they, they work with the same crew, pretty mm. much. Mm. And not just the cinematographers, they'll, they'll ha- literally work with the same, they'll try mm. and hold the same crew to create an atmosphere that they can maintain. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that, I think it's really valuable mm. having, having a, a sense of community mm. uh, and knowing that, that people will go me. will go further for you mm. when things get tough. You're not going to be out there on your own. Mm. You're going to have a whole family around you that mm. will look after you. I think that's it definitely makes sense to me, and I also think it's like, you know, they kind of understand your nuances too. You know, it takes time to get to know someone, mm. and so I think to really then start to have a really a deeper understanding of of, of someone's artistic vision. I think that's really exciting and that means you're going to do mm. surely you're going to do better work I hate the idea like you just said about like so that's probably my m- main creative frustration with the industry is exactly what you just described like that DOP can do cars and that one can do that because it's the same for directors mm. and 
you know that that you do comedy or you do drama and you do documentary you know I just hate that I find Mm. that's you know that's something I've really struggled with and I'm really fighting and I've always tried to resist but everyone they feel safe putting you in Mm. boxes and actually if you can direct comedy why can't you direct drama and if you can direct Mm. it's just all storytelling I hate I find Mm. that really unbelievably short-sighted and frustrating Anyway, that's my only gripe. <laughs> um, yeah, it's almost like they kind of, it's, you, you in the, inadvertently, certainly in commercials of you inadvertently become a kind of brand. Mm. As a director or a DOP, you kind of become a brand and you kind of, I'm starting to become aware of the kind of brand that I want to become now and, and have some kind of tailoring around that. But before mm. it was just like, a, you know, it was a brand in other people's eyes, but not, in, not necessarily mm. in mine. Mm. because people want to be able, like you say type, kind of typecast you but it is understanding what your brand is mm. what, what's the Amanda Blue brand oh, kind of I find that, that so infru- frustrating because I don't know and I think um, I, I'm not good at that stuff other people tell me so I think so I, I was recently meeting with lots of production companies because at the moment I don't have a UK production company and I haven't signed and I remember the first few meetings I had which is no one's fault because it's the way it works and of course production companies have got to decide what you are and what your brand mm. is and, and who'll come to you for what. I mm. get it, that's the mm. business. But it was sort of weird that like, so all along with commercials, I'll talk specifically about commercials. I was the person who could do emotion. <laughs> that would be what I'd say. Mm. I can. She can do mm. emotion, she can mm. make you cry mm. and she can get really beautiful and a storyteller, mm. definitely storytelling's mm. at the heart and amazing performances. Mm. And but you know you can do so it's emotion so it wasn't mm. that I'm I do funny you know and the irony being is like lots of my documentaries were actually comedy documentaries mm. I, like I did lots mm. of that and then um, and then I recently so now I've gone off and made two comedy series in long form and when I came back to starting to have these meetings with commercial production companies who want to sign me they're like oh you do comedy and of course their eyes light up because it's like a a woman doing comedy there's only they keep telling me there's only like three or two female comedy directors in commercials I don't know if that's true but there's very few because women aren't funny you know that so because women aren't funny they don't do comedy so I um so that was the thing and that I was like oh my god you're now I'm now going to be a comedy director I was the woman who could do emotion and now I'm a comedy so you like, can make them just, laugh you can make them cry like, can't <laughs> what, I whatever be, next can I be both could I be both is that even possible is that too confusing no too confusing I was like okay you decide then because mm. <laughs> Yeah. It's madness. Yeah, it's almost like you have to hand it over to them and say, how do you want to sell me? You know? yeah. <laughs> I did. It's like, okay, you, if that helps, whatever gets the jobs in. But anyway, I think it's sort of mad. You know, when I said about women aren't funny, yeah. I actually said that to women. This is sort of an aside. So I met this guy at Soho. So I'm not naming names, production mm. company, producer, male producer, who runs this. And he, and I, because he was saying, oh, you do comic and And I made, I said, yeah, because, yeah, I know. It's, of course women don't, because women aren't funny. And he went, oh. I don't know if I'd say that. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> you're fucking no way I'm signing with you, you humorless prick. Like, he didn't get that was a joke. I'm like, it's a perfect oh, did joke. I have to be harsh? Like, do you, you don't know that joke. Okay, you're off the list. <laughs> That's a good way of gauging someone, isn't it? Yeah. Tell them a joke, they don't laugh. Yeah. That's another thing, actually, uh, I wanted to ask you, so thanks for reminding me. But how much does humour play in a pass in your collaborators are people you work with and also um your storytelling oh humor is everything it's really mm. everything i think yeah. i think i've realized that like if you don't with the collaborators if you can't have a laugh together mm. 
I mean, I actually think it's really, and it's a, such a telltale sign of mm. someone's intellect and or their or their take on things or their riff mm. on the world or whatever. I mean, I think mm. it's crucial. Mm. It's so crucial. Like, you know, God, if they, you know, you might go, like, I don't know if they're much fun or they're much. It's got to be fun. I think the most important thing that is is that it's really fun and you have mm. a really good time. And I know that people always have a really good time. We, I always make sure we have a good time. Like, that's crucial. And do you think that feeds into the, the, the quality of the filmmaking? Yeah, I think it feeds into the atmosphere on set. I think it mm. means that people are enjoying what they're doing. And mm. I think that people want to come and do good work. And, mm. and it's not that it should just be a laugh a minute and, like, we're not, you know, you're getting on with it. And you're still, but I think you've got to be able to, and there's, you know, you know it gets really tense. Mm as well so you've got to be able to burst the yeah you know the, you've got to change the mood of the room sometimes and just a funny quip mm. will be the thing that just sorts it all out and you can keep going and you're all in this together and it's a shit show and you've got to be able to laugh mm. about it or it's not a shit show but you know yeah. yeah there's a few good anecdotes we could share with people yeah. working together <laughs> one of my favorite ones is when we did that dub commercial uh, the dub bar and uh, the oh, whole yeah. thing was the whole thing was designed around a grand granddad the father the, the grand the, the, the four generations and the old man who's old man. 93 and 90, it died yeah. like three months later bless right. him yeah. yeah and i remember when we set the interview up and it was you know it was important that he would talk about the, the, the bar of soap that he used do you remember and he didn't he didn't mention it once and we we traveled like all the way to pittsburgh and we've gone through this whole process and he mentioned no he actually was worse than that. he didn't mention it he then mentioned clinique <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was so funny because oh, I remember. <laughs> it was so, and, and that's when I got a real sense of your um, your kind of integrity as well. Because I remember you just turned to me and went, "Well, you know, if he doesn't use it, he doesn't use it. I'm not going to force him to what say he use it." Him, you said, "Oh my yeah. god, people would be freaking out now and making him say it." I'm like, "I'm not making a 93 year old man say something." <laughs> oh, that was brilliant. I really loved that. That's one of my favorite. I remember stories. having faith that he'd said this one good thing. Bless him. He was really mm. elderly, wasn't he? And he said mm. this because there was the four women. There was his daughter, who was an old, was the grandmother, yeah. who was the great grandfather, mm. grandmother. Then there was the mothers, who were all mm. like in their 30s, and then there were the teenage mm. girls. And he'd already set up, this is when you have the confidence, this is what mm. I mean about knowing your story. Like He said this great line, and it's like, as soon as I've got the great line for documentary, because you asked me about perform, if mm. as soon as I know they've said the amazing thing, I literally go, tick, done, yeah. it's in the edit. It's like literally mm. in the bank. Mm. I don't, it doesn't mm. matter now what he... Mm. So yes, he didn't say that, and then he said the hilarious thing about he loved Clinique. <laughs> <laughs> but he had said, my four generate, my four girls... There were the girls, and they were. They brought the boys, and they, and we've, they've all beautiful, and mm. they all have beautiful skin, mm. and they get it off their mm. grandfather. Ha ha ha! Yeah, yeah, he made this yeah. really good yeah. old man joke, like yeah. that. He got they, all their beautiful looks and skin came from him. So I was yeah. like, that's, that's better it. than him mentioning yeah. stupid brand. Yeah. I mean, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, that was funny. Mm. Yes, there's been many, many, many times. My funny things, but I can't remember how it went. Was when. You know when um oh sorry this is probably see when Benji the first um, when yeah. we were stuck in that room and the and Video Village was miles away and we're trying to shoot a, a pterodactyl or something on the floor <laughs> talking and the woman had to step on it it was one <laughs> shot <laughs> and they didn't like the pterodactyl and then they wanted <laughs> they wanted ben different dinosaur <laughs> and Benji's comments Benji was just was so hilarious so straight with he it he was as well. so straight with it and we were just crying because he just kept throwing up he had a very good knowledge of all the different dinosaurs names just, which yeah. I'd forgotten but he was just he kept throwing more in. I remember that oh, so well it was, so it was genius it was comic perfection I thought it was genius and the fact is that 
I don't think they understood that he was No, he had no he idea. With them. No. That's what made it even funnier. It's I like, know. Because they were it, being really serious and adding more yes. Yeah. Yes, try the Philopodopolis. <laughs> yeah, whatever it was. I can't remember. <laughs> and he just did it so straight down the radio, just yeah. completely straight. And yeah, we were yeah, all crying yeah. with laughter. Yeah. Yeah. That's a no on the pterodactyl. <laughs> <laughs> all she had to do was tread on it. It was so funny. Anyway, that's, that's the madness of commercials. That's, that's yeah, it's a good go. point. Yeah. Whew, does it really matter that much? Yeah, they get hooked. They get stuck on one thing, don't they? Details. Yeah, yeah. they get stuck on a detail. And then, that's true, and that's mm. a very good lesson to learn about commercials. Mm. I think I did. So some of those things take you a while to learn. It's like let them have that detail then, because mm. if they care about that thing so mm. much, if you take that away from them, like it's like knowing your knowing, battles. Knowing your battles, yeah. And I think very, that's really key. And like yeah. it happens to me on all sorts of things. Like even the budget for this um, film I'm doing at the moment, this feature documentary, is like we wanted certain things but it meant you know like there was a drone shot we wanted but you just had to balance it was all like well if we if we oh, forget that because if we mm. don't know that we can have steady cam for three days or you know it's like just going okay which one is more important yeah. even in the budgeting even when you're sort of working out what you really want and the same on set you know yeah. if an actor really wants to do it again but you're happy but they really do and it would really help them just let them mm. do it again mm. I mean it doesn't mm. undermine your authority you yeah. know yeah, I totally. Well, maybe it does, but if it do, you know, if it doesn't, then just let people have their thing. Yeah, that's a real emotional intelligence, isn't it? And it takes time to learn that to kind of to, to know what the important thing is, the, the, the stuff you need to hold on to, fight for, and hold on to, and be you know really kind of strident about, and yeah. then the things you were allowed, yeah. you can let slide. And that works exactly the same as a cinematographer as well, because yeah. you you look at an image and there's certain aspects of that image that are really important, putting a fight up for, uh, and the other things you can you can let go. So you don't want to be the person that's always kind of being rigid with, mm, with your mm. approach particularly you know when you work in collaborating with directors mm. actually one of the, the best things I ever learned about communicating with a director is never say no to a director always give them options mm. but make make it clear that one option is better than the other mm. option but give them two options and let mm. them decide sell the option yeah. you like best yeah yeah the hardest yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever I don't know come up with a clever yeah. way of getting what you want but that's you know I, when I first started out I'd say no because I, did, I couldn't see how the other option would work yeah but now you've got to present both yeah. and, and just and then you don't even you know if you have trust with someone they can just they, yeah. they'll ask you they'll say well what do you think if, yeah. you, if you kind of sometimes you just have to go hmm like that and that's enough yeah. for them to know there's a doubt in your mind yeah. whether that's going to work or not the edit's really key for that like I remember an editor I used to work with a lot saying oh I don't get stuckest and you'd get like we would have cut some beautiful sequence and we think it's essential and it's got to go in that particular place in the structure and and both of us would get stuck on it and like mm. just be sure mm. and actually sometimes with editing is particularly just try like you do just have to oh i don't know let's see you've got to do a bit of let's see because mm. you just don't know you just don't yeah. know yeah you know, like exactly the same thing you've got to be certain and then you've got to also be prepared to play around mm. do you like this the, you know the, the kind of um the um phrase a film gets made three times once in the writing once in the production and once in the editing mm. would you say that um, it's a kind of a little bit like a relay race where you have your your, your sort of producer that you're working with for the mm. first you know the pre-production stage and then that gets handed over to the cinematographer when you're actually shooting mm. and then they get, that gets handed over to the, the to editor, the editor. Mm. do you find that kind of refreshing mm. that you have a new set of eyes to kind of reinterpret the film for you, for you to go <clears> through I do. I love editing. Like I'm a real fan of editors and editing. So I really like that p process of them seeing it. And they won't have been part of it mostly, 
mostly. They won't have been part of any of the preceding months of pre-production and even the shooting or anything. So they really are the freshest eyes. Mm. They're the freshest, freshest eyes. So um, I think what editors, good editors bring is like, is, is as it's just as important as cinematographers. It's like they're the other, they're my other key creative collaborator mm. in every sense. Mm. Um, and do you have that, that, that situation where you build trust with them and you, you, you like to try and get the same people back mm. on? I like, to re- I like to let editors be for a while. Mm. And it's not quite the same with cinematographers. I suppose it is in pre-production, like we can just be mm. discussing and you can be throwing mm. up ideas. But I think editors have to sit with the material and not have me coming waging in too early you know and then as then you start to see their choices like because mm. they want to on a scripted show they roughly assemble everything you've shot by the end of that week mm. Mm. so and, and you're not meant to really but you know you kind of go oh no there was a better take than that but like mm. sometimes it gives a sense of or they've just nailed it you're like oh you totally mm. got there and and usually we'll have said like we liked that take and the, mm. it'll be noted so down you, by the script supervisor so you leave and be for a bit to yeah just get familiar with the first because edition. you don't get i mean it's it's probably not the same on everything but usually you don't get in the room with them till you wrap mm. so they will have roughly assembled mm. everything you've shot but really you know and then you'll get in the room and then you'll fine cut the whole mm. thing and you'll mm. go back to you know you'll completely start you don't always completely start again but you certainly you know the rough assembly's there because it's it's been mm. scripted so it's all there and he knows what he or she knows what shots mm. what coverage you've shot so is that your favorite part of the process the editing? i think the editing is <laughs> it's really bad to say that mm. i think the safety of the edit mm. i think the fact that you're not on set and you're not on location and mm. there's lots of cafe lattes happening and mm. sushi's around the corner mm. <laughs> it's like mm. i'm in a warm room and mm. i've done all that hard work and mm. all this amazing material that you sweated over mm. and you were out you know at so, three in the morning freezing mm. over and you know is there and it's just there mm. to be enjoyed and like so unwrapping it's, the presence it's so, unwrapping yeah. the presence it's so mm. that for me i think that's what i love and but mm. i love shooting but shooting is always slightly terrifying mm. like you know it's, it's just it has a not terrifying like, that immobilizes mm. you or anything but it has a mm. it's like running a race it mm. has that energy yeah and I, you can do it for eight weeks or whatever or you yeah. can do it for three days on a commercial or one day on a commercial mm. but you want it to end mm. <laughs> you know you want to get I, I off think the, it's like a little bit like going into battle and that's yeah. why i think that the, the um, hierarchy is so strict yeah it's like a military hierarchy yeah. it's a military maneuver in a sense yeah. isn't it because you've got so much backup that's why mm. i love documentary so scary because you've got mm. no one when you've got mm like a incredible department you know art department and people that can just fix things and come up with mm. ideas and help you and they're all there to help this mm. vision it's so exciting and it's so mm. sort of special and you can't believe that mm. you know all this effort goes into this wonderful thing to create this you know hopefully really lovely piece of art you know mm. piece of storytelling and i think that the hierarchy is really important because mm. you you feel safe in it yeah people know what they're reason. doing yeah and they know what their job mm. is and they can get yeah. better at it and you know art department's a really interesting one isn't it because i think they're very they're super close to the action as well mm. less less so the production designers so on on drama like it's like the on set guys and girls mm. like they're the really running the around air. with you you know yeah. like yeah, yeah. I think they're under a huge amount of pressure. I mean, everyone is, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't really get to collaborate with them as much on commercials as you would if you're doing long, long yeah. before they're such a... to know them well, yeah, really well. A, a good um, production designer will make a cinematographer look great. Yeah. Yeah, if you get a really good production designer, yeah. particularly if you're doing period piece, that yeah. becomes hugely important. Definitely. The, the quality of a production designer. On commercials, we rarely meet until we're on set. And the yeah. one thing I have liked about lockdown is they force us to have Zoom calls now with all the heads of department, which is brilliant. We should have been doing this from day one. Because yeah. so I get to speak to the production designer before 
decisions are made. Yeah. And I can we can talk about colours and we can talk about, you know, the kind yeah. of idea we have for practicals or whatever, you know, it's a bit it's, it's such a valuable to get the heads of department together in you know with the director and have that kind of open yeah. conversation, that round table sort of Amazing. thing. It really makes a difference. And it really would help the director. Because yeah. so much of the ideas that you bring, like a, a production designer or a cinematographer bring, really helps. Like really helps you formulate like how you want to shoot a scene yeah. or how you want to approach it or you know, that's the thing I think we're always, the, the, the probably the difficulty of the whole business is it's expensive and we're always suffering for not enough time. Mm. Time is always yeah. the but that, But that's why prep is so important. Yeah. That's, and, you know, like a well-prepped film is, is a, you know, is an efficient film yeah. and you're going to make, you're going to get the best out of it. And that's why I do think that the, the meeting with the heads of department early on, you know, I love to go on directors, as you know, I like to come on directors' records when yeah. I can because I think once you decide on the location, I think that's a huge yeah. impact yeah. for me. Um, for, for for the role of a cinematographer, I mean, that makes a massive difference. Yeah. So if you can have any influence in that at all, yeah. you know, even if it's just getting pictures sent to you and and having a conversation with the director, that's yeah. important. I, I would never do it without it. I I didn't know that because I think because my first commercials, I, all of them you shot, I thought that was the norm. Mm. And I remember going to shoot a commercial in Australia actually, and this like cinematographer who was all young and up and coming, and everyone was excited about him. And I was said, oh well, he'll come on the recce, and she was like, oh, do you want him to? And I was like, yeah, like, I'm not going to make the decision by myself. Like, I know what I want, but I also want to make sure it works for him. It was a man, for him, mm, for, mm. you know, and he was thrilled. Mm. She said he's never been asked on a... Mm. And I was like, I didn't know how else she'd do it. Like, yeah. I don't want to, you know, like, there's that thing where you get sent all the pictures and mm. I narrow it down. I sort of mm. narrow it down a bit without mm. anyone because you can just mm. sort of... But I think it's really important that... Mm, to walk the space together. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk a lot about how important that is um, for the process of, of, um, of framing the shots. I like to do all of that on the wreckage, you know. We, we I of, love that. And then yeah. it helps you is, storyboard. Yeah. Then I can go back and storyboard yeah, yeah. properly. But without you there, I'm a bit like, well, I don't know if you, want, you might not want to shoot in that direction. Mm. There's a window there. And like, you know, yeah. like things that I think look nice might be a pain mm. in the ass for everyone yeah, yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah. And it's also, it's the time that we get together without everyone else around, you know. So yeah. it's like a, a, where we can start thinking of the idea as, a, as you know collaboration yeah uh without all the other pressures which on set you know yeah, there's a I thousand know. questions that, how many questions you get asked in the first 10 minutes of being on a film set it's just it's just an attack it comes isn't it? at you yeah yeah, yeah. comes so, at you all the time so mainly like what would sort of tea would you like would you like your tea no, yeah. <laughs> would you what chair would you like to see is that come no not really that, that, the look on your face when you first got someone to, someone went and someone asked you those questions and brought it to me I'm like I am never leaving the commercial set ever again fuck documentaries who wants to be on the M4 getting fucking Burger King at like three in the morning in the camera van yeah no yeah, yeah. I'm done so let, let's let on that subject let's talk a little bit about where you came from then because when did my question to you earlier was when did you first get a sense that you wanted to direct oh yeah I think I had two like I mean I had a very early experience which is not like you know people go oh I just wanted to take photos once for one I had a cine camera mm. like I'm not that didn't happen um I realized I wanted to I thought when I was about 15 I thought I wanted to be a journalist I didn't know that was a job. And then I found out you could write stories and you could tell. And I was always really interested in current affairs. I came from quite a left-wing political family. So I didn't, and you didn't rebel against that? No, no. I was I was in my anti-Nazi league. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Badgers, mm. my jumpers mm. and my Doc Martens. Mm. Um, no, I definitely didn't rebel against that. Um, and I thought, and then I did weirdly, I arranged for my own work experience when I was like 15 to go to like, newspapers and 
like Channel 9 News and went out in a helicopter and did a story and like I just so I became interested in storytelling in that sense and um, I went to university and I did study um, I did an arts degree and I did do some journalism but I did also theatre and I did you know classic theatre and I did um, modern theatre and I fell in love with it how's the how's the theatre informed you now I mean it was such a brief thing if I think Mm. about it because I didn't pursue it but I was really good at it and I got really mm. amazing marks. It was mm. like my best marks. Mm. And we used to direct little plays and, you know, but I was learning like, you know, about Brecht and Stanislavski and mm. doing, you know, um, you know, all the Greek plays and mm. it was brilliant. So it was a real, it was a real general learning curve of the kind of, mm. of, of the literature around, you know, plays, but um, the study of plays, but it was also working. There were a lot of people on that course who were actors. So I wasn't, I was a kind of, art student doing journalism and communications and cultural studies and things but I was doing these big theatre units and um, we put on I directed a small play and then I was in a small play as well and I just loved the whole thing of bringing something to life like taking Mm. this text Mm. this incredible text like Endgame or something you know Samuel Beckett or something and turning it into something that was real and live and visceral Mm. and so my sort of, do I want to be a journalist? I was like, no, I don't really. I don't really want the page. I think I care more mm. about, and I was a real, you know, I was a real film goer, definitely, all through teenage years. I was. A, my brother mm. was pretty obsessed with music and cinema, and so was I. So we were culture vultures. And did you your know? parents have a sense of, did they um, enjoy cinema? No, but they they weren't like, but they, they were more political. They liked, they definitely loved films, and they definitely loved books and things, but they weren't. They weren't literary or they weren't... Mm. So it's your they were more then. working class than yeah. that. But they were definitely interested in the world mm. and the world around them. And they were liberal, so they, I didn't grow up in a household of conservative mm. people. They were mm. liberal people and um, not racist and not homophobic, which mm. is quite mm. unusual for mm. our generation. Yeah. I didn't have any of that, thank God. Um, and I... So that was like the beginning. I thought, I want to be a storyteller, but um, do I want to... Is it theatre? Is it... I really love films as well. And I just was, I suppose, around my late teens, you know, before I finished university is when I thought, and I, and I did, I started watching more and more sort of intro, you know, like left to field cinema, mm. French new wave, seventies, American, Australia, you know, mm. and then I fell, I really fell in love with cinema. And I, by the time I left university and went, I, I went, I came here to do the classic Australian one year because also my parents are Scottish they're Glaswegian and they emigrated to Australia so I had big British links all my family were in the UK my grandparents my cousins so I came over to do the classic year of backpacking and fell in love with London and then by that stage was really sure I wanted to be like a scriptwriter or a director mm. or I wanted to tell stories that were for the cinema um, not for the theatre and so I when I finished traveling, I decided to stay here and do a master's and I did a master's in film. Mm. And that's when I, I was like 23 or something. So that's when I really honed kind of, that was the kind of storytelling I cared about the most. Mm. And that's what, you know, moved me and struck me and was part of my everyday parlance, you know, the way I saw the world, I suppose. Like not the way, the the art form I went to the most Mm. was cinema. Did you believe back then when you were studying as a student did you actually believe that you're going to have a career in that and that that was going to be your sole kind of earning? I was pretty determined. Mm. I didn't, you know, I was pretty bloody back determined. back then it wasn't, it wasn't a given at all no, that you could actually do it. No, it wasn't. I was pretty determined though. I was pretty, 
certain and headstrong and was going to do whatever I bloody well could for mm. sure mm. Well, and I sort of I think that 15 year old confidence to write to the kind of channel nine news thinking mm. I want to and going I want to do work experience and, mm. I, and I went to all of those stations and did it no one else mm. everyone else just worked at their dad's mm. you know taxation office or the mm. mum's got a florist or you know mm. I went and did something like I think I knew where that do you think I, you got that that I kind of strength that grit is yeah. from probably having kind of lefty parents they're quite tough they're quite mm. sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps I didn't mm. have family to mm. cushion the blow I didn't have grandparents mm. so I had my family somewhere else mm. and also I think you know this is getting deep but I think you know my parents separated when I was 11 we lost all that my father went bankrupt we lost everything so to be quite young and have quite a profound mm. trauma like mm. not just your parents split up but you lose your family home you lose everything you're now quite you know my mum has to get a job as a secretary she's raising us you know we thank god the government give you some benefits because you know we weren't living in a council estate but we were struggling i think there's something about that experience yeah. to go do you know what i'm gonna have to stand on my own two feet yeah. my mum wasn't a feminist in the sense of a kind of you know card waving protesting but she certainly said you know don't ever rely on a man mm. the world's your oyster your education's mm. your ticket you know, I had that message. Mm. I had that message. So I think all of that combined made me know I had to look after myself. Mm. And if you wanted something, there was no, we had no, there was mm. no nepotism. There was no connection mm. to the film business or to anyone that was going to help me. It was going to just mm. be my pure determination and my brains. I think that really helps you as a filmmaker. I remember Roberto Baghini when he accepted the award for uh, Life is Beautiful. Was yeah, it? yeah. I love that film. And he said, um, uh, thank you to my parents for giving me the gift of poverty. Yeah. Which is, which I think is a lot to be said for that. Yeah. I think you have to be like a tenacious dog at a trouser leg as a filmmaker, don't yeah. you? Particularly if you're directing. Yeah. You so have to, to be self reliant. Like yeah. no one was going to be able to lend me any money. Mm. You know, I was going to have to do it all for myself and make it work. Mm. It is a good thing. Mm. I know. It is a good thing. It's hard. It's tough, <laughs> but it's good. And there, I suppose you maybe always have that thing of like knowing it can all go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so but keep working yeah it keeps you on that edge yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but that that's true of every profession and every life really yeah. isn't it and to have to have a sort of real palpable sense of that i think it's a good thing yeah well there's you no trust you know there's no yeah. inheritance there's no yeah, trust yeah, fund yeah, yeah, to yeah. rely on yeah yeah you know, yeah. Like, yeah um and i'm glad of that i'm yeah, definitely so glad I. of that and yeah. because it wasn't br- you know i was i also had a strong mom who taught me about hard work and she mm. was hard working like mm. she was really hard working and had to be and that's a really important thing to just think is normal that was just normal mm. to me mm. people got up every day and had to go somewhere to put food on the table and like mm. it's so important yeah. i've made i've made some um back just sort of it's sort of off point but like i made these documentaries that were really award-winning about john prescott mm. when he when you know it, just before he became a lord and when the labor party was transitioning mm. into being gordon brown and um and it was his journey through the class system. And it was quite funny, but it was also really moving. And um, I was just going to say about like, it was, so this was quite a long time ago now. It was before we were really using the word underclass. Like mm. it was probably the mid 2000s, like 15 mm. years ago or something. And um, and I remember going to like going, oh, we we're going to go up to working class Rochdale or whatever. And it was like, when we got there, this phrase working, it was like, they're not working. No one's working class. No one's mm. working. And mm. no one has been working some of the families I met we're into like the children are third generation of not working 
So you've got a grandparent who's probably only in their 40s who doesn't work. You've got the parents who are in their 20s who don't work. And you've got children watching. And I remember this amazing community leader, a woman at a community centre there. And the community centre was filled with these incredible women, mainly, saying these kids don't even learn they haven't even watched someone get ready for work. I thought it was such a, it's funny mm. how things stay with you, like such mm. a thing that she said, like, so they've never watched someone have to set their alarm at seven, mm. the alarm goes off, you've got to, you know, whatever, iron your clothes, get ready, have mm. breakfast and leave the house at eight because you get the bus to work. Mm. And therefore the school runs the same, like the kids have got to get ready, mm. they've got to have breakfast, they've got to, because a lot of these kids weren't even going to schools. Yeah. Like they couldn't even, like they were getting taxis and because mm. no one had a system. Yeah, you, we are basically a combination of our habits. I yeah, think, and that people. system so, just to get up yeah. every day and do that thing, like yeah. it's just, I mean, it sounds Routines, really fundamental to yeah. think that that was not even happening in many, many households. Just that mm. fundamental lesson of like yeah. how to get yourself ready and, for the day. And that's important as a freelancer as well to have a routine around um, your freelance career. So, because, mm. you know, if you don't have that, then you, you know, you need some structure mm. to that. Mm. Do you find that helps you with writing yeah. as well? The, yeah. the kind of work ethic and yeah and sometimes I lose it and I don't have it and when I don't have it it's bad and because I've got children I don't have free reign at all like some people do and I don't have as much time so but when I get into a good system like when the kids are at school and they're not at home because of lockdown or holidays and I can get into a system it's great and it Mm. works it Mm. definitely works if you can kind of walk the dog do your meditation come back da, da, da. even if you only do like three or four hours or even mm. if you don't only do an hour but just having i find that the system can f- can f- pretty quickly unravel and then mm. i don't get it's having that non-distracted deep deep yeah. time isn't it to, to do deep work yeah, yeah. i would that's what yeah. i'm suffering from not having mostly yeah. isn't that that very intensive time when's the best when uh, during the day is there a, a particular period that you can write i'm the best? really good in i'm really good in the morning yeah. so i can get up really early i can mm. get up at like five mm. and that's my best time and i'm really good until probably i'm not good in by i would never try and write in the evenings mm. and people write in the evenings and that's mm. but I'm the opposite. I'd probably be done. I mean, because I had the kids coming home at three thirty from school. Not now, because they're older mm. and they don't. They get home later at like five. But mm. for a long time, my deadline was kind of three o'clock, mm. and I wouldn't have been able to write all day because there's other stuff. You know, someone's got to mm. buy groceries and do other shit. Mm. So, but I think the morning's really good for me. If I've got loads done by three, mm. I'd probably stop then. Yeah, yeah, that's what I do. I, I just, I give myself. If I can get everything done by like six o'clock and give myself an evening of uh, of watching movies and just relaxing, then mine is probably yeah more like three or four, four Mm. o'clock, and then you know then sometimes you've got a lot of Mm. calls or things. Mm. I don't mind that's at four or in that afternoon bit those last couple of hours. Mm. I don't mind doing calls. Mm. I don't mind doing zooms. I don't mind, but actually sitting and writing and that Mm. intense creativity, Mm. I definitely can't do it much Mm. past that time. Maybe five at the most. I really go to and I I because I can get up really early and I genuinely I generally get up quite early. Mm. I don't go to bed super late. Um, on the subject of deep kind of creativity, what how important a role would you say is a, how important um, a stage is the casting process for you in in terms of we haven't really spoken much about casting. Really important. Yeah. I mean, crucial crucial mm. if you get that right you're fine yeah. you're kind of basically fine unless you fuck it up and do you have a pro- <laughs> and do you have a process of casting is there a kind of any I sort of casting. tips I really you like give casting. young directors on what they should look out I for I think trust your instinct I think your instinct's everything mm. and if you've got mm. good instinct mm. you know 
do you do you have to have people do you cast people that you know are going to not need direction or do you want to hear and almost say it correctly in the casting or do you I like I like I don't expect someone I mean it's amazing if someone comes in and nails it does mm. the fir, you know does the first you know few lines and it's, they've got the tone that you have in your head mm. or they bring something to it that's even better than you could have imagined that's mm. amazing mm. but if you like them and they kind of it's interesting what they're doing but actually you give them notes like you mm. might be play it more you know whatever it may mm. be play it slower and more thoughtfully or whatever I think it's really important to see that people can take notes. Mm. Now, that's not necessarily mm. the case for someone who's like a incredibly crafted, done it forever, mm. Mm. won three Oscars, you know, maybe. But mm. I think if you're going to be working with that, you know, you've got to have a working relationship mm. and how well they take notes and listen mm. to what you've said and take that on board is a massive indicator of how you're going to be able to work mm. with them. Because if they can't take notes and can't change their performance, like the nuance mm. of their performance, then they're not going to be a good enough mm. actor. And with, when you feel you found the right cast, how much of a battle you put up with uh, production, other influencers coming in and trying to change the cast? To, to yeah, they're those ones. I think the ones you really want and think are, are absolutely spot on, you've got to fight for. Mm. You've got to really fight for. Mm. Yeah. You really fight for, definitely. I remember listening to a, a documentary on Quentin Tarantino and how he casts for Pulp Fiction. Uh, and they his, didn't want thingy, did they? Because he was Travolta. a has-been. Yeah, didn't want John Travolta. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. they thought he was a has-been. Yeah, and he was willing to walk away from the deal ah. if he didn't get John Travolta. And there's this fam- kind of famous conversation between him and Harvey Weinstein. And Harvey Weinstein started counting down. No, he started, I think Tarantino started counting down from 10 and he was going to walk away. And Harvey Weinstein, being Harvey Weinstein, refused to say yes yeah. to John Travolta. And in the end, his assistant jumped in. And said yes on his behalf. On Harvey's behalf, because he couldn't allow himself to. Could, yeah, he couldn't. That allow, megalomaniac couldn't yeah, be wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when he saw it, of course, he said, "I'm so pleased that I cast yeah. John Travolta." Yeah. I, Harvey I cast. Yeah. I'm sure he took complete yeah. credit for yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> that's so, clever. That's yeah. that's having some balls. That's also mm. having made a brilliant film that you've got some cashier yeah. and power. But I really, one of the things I loved about the documentary the most, and I'd recommend it. If people haven't seen it. I'd really recommend it. Is he um, when he made Pulp Fiction? Yeah, it was the first film that made him money because like, Reservoir Dogs was a very low budget film, so mm. Pulp Fiction made him some real money. Mm. Uh, and he said um, they asked him the crew. I think the, the editor asked him. She said to him, um, "What are you working on? What are you going to work on now? Uh, you know, what are you going to? Yeah, what's what's your next job? Because well, I'm going to start writing my next film. You know, and in a couple of years' time, we'll shoot that." And she was like, "Well, aren't you going to be shooting anything in between that?" And he goes, "Why would you need to do that? Look how much money we just earned. Mm. How do you live? Because he basically lived with, you know, like he lived within what he within earned. That he can live off that for two years. Yeah. yeah. So all he wanted to do was make his films, and he didn't care about all of the trappings of celebrity. Mm. He just wanted to make his films. That, that was his priority. Mm. So he, yeah, he made that 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 earning of that one film last for years until mm. he was ready to make his next film. Mm. And I really love that. I love mm. the kind of that was that sort of that confidence in a way, and, mm. and not getting distracted by things that are less important. Mm. Important, And that kind of leads me on to my next question. Um, when you worked with Mike Figgis, I remember you saying that you, you kind of kind of lucked out on the first job you did with mm. him, didn't you? You did leave in Las Vegas, mm. right? It's my first ever job, yeah. ever, in the yeah. business. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like, everything kind of came together in that film. And oh, so it, the stars aligned. Yeah. This guy, the line producer, what was his name, Mark? Oh, my God, he was such a classic. I loved him. He was, like, the classic quintessential, like, central casting, get me a Jewish guy to line mm-hmm. produce a film. Like, mm. hilarious, New mm. Yorker, been around the block. And I remember him saying to me, 
oh, you're fucked now. This is the best best film you've ever worked on. It's only going to be downhill from here. (laughs) It was like, and it was just, I so remember him saying that to me. Um, He, Mike was in a really good place having had, having been, he had been in a really bad place because he'd made a load of films that, you know, because he was very much a Hollywood director, even though he was British. And they had studios had taken back and recut, and he'd had all these. He'd made a really, he had a really successful film, Internal Affairs, mm. that they loved. Do you know that film, with I Richard Gere? It's, yeah, it's a really good thriller, really good isn't film. it? And he, yeah. he had a huge amount of money in the yeah. bank, mm. metaphorically, money mm. in the bank, and and money, I think, real mm. money. But um, and then he went off and made his kind of dream, his own personal art, more mm. more arty, let's say, mm. films. And um, he got burnt. They all mm. hated them and they were all, for various reasons, they were taken back and studios did awful things and he had mm. terrible experiences. I think I'm, I hope I'm saying the right. Mm. this is right. And then he made a nice film in the UK called The Browning Version, which did quite well, but wasn't again like, you know, it was a really lovely film, but didn't, mm. you know, go on to win loads of awards or anything. But so by the time he was pretty fed up, I think, mm. and he found that, you know, he got sent this great book by some friends of his, which was leaving Las Vegas, and he decided to make a low-budget film. So it was around the time, I think, it was just pre-Tarantino's um, first mm. film. Like, it was really that beginning of the 90s mm. independent cinema. It was just, like, Jim Jarmusch was making mm. films, Cat Tarantino was about to, or had maybe just made his first film. It was, like, it was very much that crest, that early... And so to make a film for $4 million at the time for a director who'd been making much bigger films was like a real step down. Mm. And, um, but he could control it. That's all he wanted. And it was French financing. So he could mm. control the film. And he had complete say. I mean, I'm, he still would have had to... I think there were still ver- various arguments about lots of things, but he had more control than, than he'd had by being, it being an independent film. And um, he decided to shoot it on Super 16, which again, I didn't understand why that was so significant until I learned so much on that film mm. and I learned so much about what, what Super 16 was and why it was the choice mm. aesthetically and what it meant. And, mm. and then it did, went on obviously to, to be hugely successful and make lots of money and you know get nominated for four Oscars and Nicholas won for Best Actor and it won all these other mm. Golden Globes and Independent Spirit Awards and everything. But I just... Um, I don't think I think even for him the stars aligned you know like everyone wanted to do it everyone was doing it for the right reasons Nicolas Cage at that time wanted to do an interesting film because he hadn't he'd been doing a few Hollywoody things that weren't stretching Mm. him everyone was doing it because they wanted they believed Mm. in it I think that's Mm. that's that you know you have those times don't you Mm. when it just feels like everyone's there for the right reasons and everyone really cares about it thinks Mm. it's an important story and Mm. so it was yeah and Mike was in a really good place so it was a, it was kind of blessed I think you know that's a, um, a really I, I really like that kind of point you make about doing it for the right reasons because I think because after that of course you, you saw the, it the, changed well you saw Hollywood I guess yeah. didn't you yeah, and, then, you saw, and then it was never as nice yeah. it, but like the films were always fraught and you know I really saw a lot quite young mm. about like the system and how it works mm. and mm. it wasn't it was it just it, it so wasn't the same energy yeah so that's quite a good tip for young directors because I guess there's this ambition of thinking that the big time is mm. is, is going to reward you with everything, mm. and that's not actually not the case mm. for most people. You it? lose it's, control. Yeah. Mm. It's about how much you want to have control. It's a bit mm. like documentaries; you have a lot of control, and then you go to a commercial where you've sort of 
you do have a bit of control. We don't have mm. much because there's mm. so many people feeding in. Yeah. That's the two opposite ends of the spectrum and everything mm. else is on a yeah. in a spectrum in other plane. Yeah. But those two are the, you know, from the least to the most yeah. control, I think. Yeah, the more money is involved, the more parties yeah. that are involved. And, and yeah. the, that famous saying, a racehorse designed by a committee is a camel yeah. kind of comes into play. <laughs> yeah, that whole kind of, the, the, the monitor kind of, um, um, you know, committee around the monitor yeah. and everyone's pitching in. Yeah. I mean, it changed a lot when we tra- <clears throat> when we transitioned from video to film, yeah. uh, from film to video, I should say. I mean, of no. course, big, huge directors that are so, have, have, you know, had all their successful films and, have, you know, of course they have amazing control on those huge mm. films still, but they're, 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 rare, they're, they're more rare than, mm. you know, aren't they? You've got to have. Yeah. So your, your priority would always be to have your, have final cut. I would, would love it? to have final cut. I don't mm. mind like input and notes. I'm not mm. precious because I think actually, you know, I think you need that. I think you need outside, you, mm. you know, you need screenings and you need to know how mm. things are playing and, mm. you know. Um, but I think, I think if you don't get to kind of realize your vision, then it definitely gets compromised. But it's not to say that you're not, I'm not open to feedback. I completely am, mm. you know, completely am. What advice? Uh, what? Let's get into some kind of, kind of nice, kind of obvious questions, but nice for the viewers. Um, what's the one thing that you wish you knew when you started your career? <laughs> <laughs> that you don't need to know everything. Yeah, you don't need to know. I everything. think I wish I yeah. knew that. I wish yeah. I knew that that was okay. Mm. I definitely wish I. I, did, I had. Mm. I didn't feel insecure about not knowing it all mm, and to have thinking trust that was in, a weakness and a yeah. vulnerability and it makes me look stupid and mm. oh you know i don't mm. deserve to be here exactly like that all feeds into the imposter mm. syndrome what have you got better at doing now than than when you first started do you say oh uh, probably being being um more decisive like i said like that commercials discipline of mm. having to look at a treatment having to look at a script and then do a treatment so mm. really decide what you're making because mm. documentary is quite organic mm. so you're allowed to kind of mm. have lots of kind of ideas for quite yeah. a while and then having to storyboard so making decisions mm. which is all a discipline but that can only come from experience that can only come from yeah. experience and then yeah. and then learning to be very decisive but I think what I've fine-tuned and what is still the most fundamental and this is this is like you can't teach this is trusting your instinct mm. I think trusting your instinct is mm. everything. Yeah, but you, when your instinct is refined, oh, that's when you're, good. Yeah, yeah. But when you're starting out, you yeah, don't, your instinct isn't no, necessarily to be trusted. I know. Yeah, that's the I problem, know. isn't it? That so is you, the problem. Yeah, it's knowing, it's knowing um, how to kind of... But what a director it. should have, if you don't have this, and you, you should have an instinct for the story you're telling. Mm. You should. I would even look back and think the first thing I ever made, even though I might not have known all the, you know, how mm. to shoot it, I knew the story I was telling and what right. was that story and what did I want it to feel like that. Right. If you don't have that, you're not really, maybe you're not a storyteller. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you've got to believe in the story, even if it's written by someone else or it's someone else's idea. Yeah. It comes back to that point of view again, doesn't it? Yeah, Having you've got under- to have a yeah. point of view on yeah. that thing. Otherwise, yeah. it's like, you know, I don't know, what is it? You're sort of just flailing about you've got to yeah. have an instinct for it and what it is you're trying to say or what emotion you're trying to elicit or how you're trying to make it be funny or whatever you know whatever the yeah. particularities of it are um yeah so let's talk a little bit more about performances um are there any kind of techniques for getting a performance out of a real person as opposed to an actor well i think the first i mean fundamental is they've got to feel comfortable like absolutely uh 
they've got to feel ready to tell their story and you've got to get them to the place of being ready. So I actually spend quite a lot of time, not always, this isn't true, but if I can, with the main subjects of my documentaries before I film with them. Hmm. So just talking, it'd be the same with actors. I think time spent talking about the character hmm. with an actor, like how do you see the character, you know, like so that we're, we're in a similar space, or at least I understand their perception. Hmm. But with real people, what I've got to know is what their story is and how they feel about their story and what are they willing to talk about? What's uncomfortable? And if it's uncomfortable, is it uncomfortable um, but okay to push them on it? Mm. Or is it off limits that's, because it's traumatizing? Right, that's so, a really interesting point. You know, yeah. you've got to really actually, it's yeah. really dangerous to say this, but it is true. And it's like, I've always grappled with this. You are sort of like a psychologist mm. and you've got to be very careful with people's feelings because you're taking mm. them on a journey. Sometimes I do mm. interviews that are four hours long taking mm. someone back through mm. something that could be quite dark mm. so you've got to kind of know how to lead them there and i often lead people there in quite circuitous ways mm. i don't directly always come in with the thing mm. it might be other things that allows them that just to get people talking because people can be quite nervous so you want you need their their you know everything their voice their 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 choice of words that for to mm. feel natural and flowing so you've mm. got to get them to the space where they've sort of forgotten about everyone else they're just focusing on you so you've got to have complete mm. eye contact like i often lean quite far forward you know i don't mm. want to be ever that too mm. far away from them mm. i have to make it so mm. that everything else disappears for them yeah. because they're not actors yeah they're not used to all this other mm. stuff around them mm. and so you kind of start to lead them down a path that you know they're feeling safe and comfortable and then you can start to ask the difficult questions or the questions that are going to be, you know, elicit funny stuff or whatever it may be. I've always got a very clear agenda when I do mm. an interview of what I want from someone. Mm. Always. And is that through research or is that just instincts? Yeah, because I know the story. I kind of usually what's happened is there's usually been an AP or a researcher spoken to them before mm. I do. Mm. Um, I know the sensitivities so I know where you can go and how far you can go and you know and then like sometimes a documentary it's not just about the interview it might be like like we recently shot this sequence where we wanted the women to dance together and they don't dance together but they do dance they're both mm. like these old you know they love mm. music and they're like so we didn't pressure them but we had this really beautiful visual idea for them dancing together and we and, and particularly my cinematographer mm. wouldn't let go of it mm. and i was not sure we were going to get it but we just set up this atmosphere in the studio and it was the, it was things like it's clever you've got to manipulate it was the last day of filming mm. so they'd already done like two weeks with us so they're celebratory mm. it's like okay this mm. is like and then we'll have a drink afterwards and then mm. we'll you know mm. so it's like time it don't make them do yeah. that on day two yeah. like mm. you know build up the relationship it, yeah. build up the trust show them the amazing lights mm. using get mm. them into have music mm. playing like just mm. what i mean you just you are mm. sort of that's the thing with real people you are slightly manipulating them mm. but you know for the right reason if, if you're mm. if you're doing it you know you're not doing it to expose someone but you're doing mm. it to show because you what we wanted to do is show their joy mm. and they talk a lot about like there's a lot of talk about music and mm. coming together through music and it was just a way of like how can we show these older women now mm. still have you ever had a situation where you 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 are actually manipulating someone because they're kind of like a villain or something? And you're trying to you are trying to expose them, or has it always been? Have you always been completely empathetic to? to it depends. The, I've had definitely had not very nice people in some films, so, so I just would, would come you, at them. You, I would come at someone who's difficult and reluctant and not partic- just with the questions. Mm. 
you know, That's and maybe sort of start default. a bit softer, but mm. just go with the questions. I wouldn't have the same, mm. especially if it's not someone that you're, you might only be filming with them for that mm. hour. You don't have like a relationship that has to sustain over a year or mm. whatever it may be. But um, have you ever had to try and provoke someone into into giving? I definitely mm. think I do provoke a bit. Mm. I think that's part of it a bit. Mm. I think I even do it with subjects that are if there's something funny mm. or if there's something mm. you know. It's like you've got to be a provocateur. Yeah, I think you are being a provocateur. I think you want to get reactions from people. Mm. So I definitely do a bit of that, even in a cheeky way, just mm. in a kind of fun way. I remember like this sounds manipulative, but it wasn't like I, when I made the John Prescott series, like here's an example of like holding your cards and knowing how you're gonna get good material from a real person. So, cause it was this travel through the class system. And again, it was like the early days of when chav became a term, mm. you know, like it was around that mm. people when people wore Burberry and, mm. and you know, here's this man who'd been the like, you know, deputy prime minister and chav was a really known, everyone used that term in a derogatory way. And um, so, when we looked at the class system, we weren't looking at working class, middle class. It was it was nuanced. It was like underclass. It was like new money, old money, Middle England, chavs. Like what did all these different pejorative terms about class mean or funny terms? So I was with him in his house and we were filming something else. And I mentioned the word chavs. And I don't even think we were filming. I just was with him. And because he was quite blustering and he was quite like, he didn't remember, you know, he's quite like, doesn't really mm. always listen. And I was aware of that. I knew him quite well. He went, what, what's that? What's a chav? And I went, the light bulb went off and I went, oh my God, he doesn't know what a chav is. Like he literally doesn't know that term. He doesn't. And it was a bit cheeky, but I just thought that's because we're going to do a whole section on chavs. Mm. Mm. And we took him to meet, in inverted commas, chavs. Mm. Like it's a terrible term, but so... I and one it's one of the best sequences in the whole thing is the sequence with the chavs because on the way there in the car I'm driving with him he always had this drive and I'm sitting mm. in the back and I'm filming him and I said he I said so we're going to he said what are we doing what's this chavs we're going to the home of the chavs <laughs> <laughs> it's such good. we're yeah. going to the home of the chavs <laughs> and he and so this whole sequence is about him not knowing what a chav is That's and yeah. me having hearing my voice going you don't know what a chav is like mm. what is it then and he's going what is it i don't know i don't know me explaining to him deputy prime minister mm. what it is and then he meets these girls so it's like that's you mm. i had a piece of information that i mm. knew was going to end mm. up being a good sequence because mm. i could use that to and it wasn't to, it wasn't to, it sounds like it wasn't to step, you know, to make him look silly. It was more to watch to, him to experience him it, to humanise yeah. him, to watch him experience mm. learning something, yeah. to yeah. see him actually yeah. going, oh, that's what that is. Yeah. So what does that mean? And like that, to watch that yeah. process. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. That's very good. Yeah. Well, it's been amazing, Amanda, as I knew it would, actually. I was, I was really excited about having you on because I was saying to these guys, oh, you know, she's going to be brilliant and... Yeah, you haven't disappointed. So thank you so much. And thank, thank you for you. being so willing to go, you know, into sort of deeper waters and to be so kind of honest about everything you've experienced. And it's going to be great for uh, the young filmmakers out there to hear your take on it. And particularly being a successful female director as well. I think that's got a lot of, you know, a lot of kudos to, you know, to celebrate. So Thank you. It's a pleasure. Is that all right? Yeah, that's yes. great. Tune in next time. We'll have... Uh,